We're talking competition strategy today with the SCSP team. We have here with us the Future Technologies Platform team, consisting of PJ Makis, Abigail Kakura, and Will Moreland. We'll talk about critical technologies and how to develop a national technology strategy. Co-hosting with us today is Vishnu Kanan, who works at the Carnegie Endowment. Welcome to China Talk, everyone. So what is SPSP and how does the Future Technology Platforms team fit into it? Yeah, thank you so much, Jordan. So Special Competitive Studies Project is a 501c3 nonpartisan effort to think about the future of the country across three futures, both the future of geopolitics this decade, the future of democracy versus autocracy, and the future of strategic technologies. We're named after SSP, and then we're organized now to sort of continue the work of the AI Commission, but beyond AI, to all other strategic technology sectors that could determine the destiny of nations. We think that those three factors are sort of characterized the decade we're facing, and it was time to think through how could we position and organize ourselves to win those futures. This is something that has a near history and a far history. In the near case, the National Security Commission on AI had Eric Schmidt and Bob Work as the chair and co-chair, and a wonderful collection of commissioners from across the country. It was led by Ili Baraktari, who was a DOD civilian and was also chief of staff to H.R. McMaster as NSA at the White House. He was the executive director of that commission. And we were getting a lot of positive waves from both branches of government about the work of the commission and thoughts about it not ending. So what would that look like? Because commissions have a beginning and an end. So it was on people's minds. And then Eric was working on a book with Kissinger about AI and how it's going to affect society. And he was telling him about the special studies project. This is something also that Illy had studied, which ran from 56 to 59, Rockefeller had called Kissinger out of Harvard and said, convene the country, you know, convene the thinkers across the country to think about how America faces the challenge of the Soviet Union at the time. So as pre-Sputnik, 56 to 59, they wrote a book called Prospect for America, and that was the conclusion of the Special Studies Project. So that is why we're called Special Competitive Studies Project. We're named after SSP, and then we're organized now to sort of continue the work of the AI Commission, but beyond AI to all other strategic technology sectors that could determine the destiny of nations. The way we're basically structured is we have senior advisors for each panel. We have six panels. Those panels are you know, basic segments of the competition. So you have a foreign policy panel, a defense and intel panel, a society panel, and then one devoted on the US economy. And today you're talking to the future tech platforms panel, which did not exist in the 50s. So no, no analogy there. So that's the purpose of the project, how we're structured, and that we're just trying to convene the country, both advisors and panelists, to think through this future together. PJ, talk a little bit about your professional background. How do you, how do you wind your way towards writing about the future of technologies and national competitiveness? My tech journey like started maybe like yours did, as I've listened to your podcast. You know, you, you obviously were interested in tech when you were younger. I was a STEM kid. I went into the military, and in the military, I was focused on operations, command and control operations for the Air Force. But when I wasn't doing that, I was finding myself in tech programs. So that's what, you know, why my area code is out in the Nellis area in Nevada. And as I started growing up in that process, I was able to start doing strategy, which is where my degrees were. So I was involved in the third offset effort under Bob Work from 2015 to 2017. After a two-year stint in the Middle East during the ISIS war, came out from that. And Illy had asked me to join him as staff at the NSEI Commission to think about audacious technology programs that might help us get ahead. That was a little bit like what I was doing in the military. I uh, did a stint at the NSC, thinking about international technology competition, had the privilege to work with Laura Rosenberger and did a lot of work with Sharon Shabra. And then we started this 501c3. So if you could give a grade to the papers you were riffing off of relative to what the papers you were riffing off of when you were doing the third offset. How developed do you think the thinking is? I think there's a, a lot of rich historical text and literature we can draw on in thinking about the problems we're facing today, as long as we're considering how that has changed. But for example, something we, we thought a lot about in our work over the past year was the sort of Vannevar Bush model of the U.S. innovation ecosystem in uh, the 1950s as the special studies project was approaching its work. And without sort of assuming that, that the world still looked like that today, it provided a good vantage point for us to sort of compare the world we're in now and a, a framing mechanism for thinking about how that geometry of innovation has changed. So that's just one example of 
where it's sort of the the text on these questions uh, sort of beyond the the current context. There's the the history of scientific progress and and the history of uh, innovation and U.S. China relations and and there's so many different directions I I think we can go where we can find rich historical examples and and insights even if they're not written about the world as it is today. So Abby, let's take it back to 1620 if you don't mind. You guys wrote a fun little blog post about critical technology lists and found this quote from Francis Bacon, of all people, saying, quote, we should notice the force, effect, and consequences of inventions. He highlighted printing, gunpowder, and the compass as inventions that changed the appearance and state of the whole world, first in literature, then in warfare, and lastly in navigation. He saw that the impact was so immense that, quote, no empire, sect, or star appears to have exercised a greater power and influence on human affairs. What is it with humanity and critical technology lists? Well, I think you made you made the exact point with the quote that uh, we've been doing it since Francis Bacon's time and even earlier. It's hard to sort of find that strategic insight, but with someone like Bacon, hundreds of years from now, we can look back and and really see like, oh, he he got it, and he got it before most of the rest of the world did. Uh, and so I, when we came across that quote and we were writing that blog post, we were deep in the process of developing the framework that, that we came up with to try to understand the strategic significance of various technologies and make a list that we think captures the various perspectives that others use when, when developing their own lists and, and try to think about how our process and, and the model we're developing could actually go beyond that. So we can get into ed- more, more of that process and, and that framework, but you're right. I mean, we've been making lists for centuries. I guess I'm, I'm just jealous. How did you find it? How did you stumble on this? Do you remember? I think we came across it uh, in reading the literature on general purpose technologies and how they're defined by the ways they impact the world beyond what we originally scoped them to be. You took us in exactly the direction I think we wanted to go, which is how do you decide what gets on the list and what gets off? Vishnu, it's a great question. And part of our ambition is to actually see how can we develop a public-private model to help the country get past listing. The listing process is really important. And, and we think it starts with asking the right question. You know, what, what questions does a country ask to determine where the signal and the noise is for what to compete upon? So like with your question, we looked at these questions in three big categories. There's questions you ask of tech if, let's say, you're a nuclear physicist. There's questions you ask of tech if you're, say, a China regionalist. And there's questions you may ask of that if you're an American venture capitalist looking into our own ecosystem. And those three questions don't typically get asked in the same place. So what we did is we stepped back and said, if you were to put these questions together almost like a funnel that narrows you in to the strategic significance of where a nation should plan and where it could leave things to chance, that's what the questions are in our strategic evaluation framework. And so we, we have questions in there like tech question one, which is, is the technology in consideration something that would fundamentally alter the paradigm of how something else operates like quantum on encryption? One of the other questions we have there in the tech list is, is this a technology that would fundamentally alter the macroeconomic fundamentals of the country? And one of the questions to ask you of the two to three that we really went by since as other guests on your show have mentioned, you know, it involves a future component, so it's a guess. And all strategy involves a guess since it's a, about the future. So how do you guess and what do you go by? And in, in defining these six battlegrounds that we can sort of lay out, we said it, a nation should probably lead in the general purpose technologies of our day, of which we see five coming together, which we can describe from mechanization, electrification, automation, digitization, and now intelligentization with AI. In a modern robot, you can see all five of those coming together in one object. And then there's also this one over the horizon of biotechnology, which there's an amazing transformation happening. And so we said simply, hey, when you look at all these questions and you're thinking 10 years out, you could probably safely say that it's wise for a nation to try to lead in those technologies. So that's how we think about it. It's like a funnel asking these strategy questions that aren't typically all asked in one place but came together in in a way we think of it as a funnel leading you to these choices a nation makes about when you plan and when you leave it to chance. So 
I'm I'm struck by how in all strategy documents you you face the challenge of what stays in and and what stays on the on the cutting room floor. And similarly in list making, when you're going through that funneling exercise, you're starting with kind of big questions about principle and direction. You're narrowing to what also seem like pretty wide ranging technologies, right? Many of the things that you mentioned just now, PJ, and, and things that appear in the report, things like semiconductors, artificial intelligence as a broad umbrella, biotechnology is a broad umbrella. These seem to incorporate a whole bunch of component technologies, and they seem to be fundamental to lots of other parts of human activity. So if those are central, what's on the margins? What were you either hesitant about including, or what did you feel comfortable saying is not a strategic technology? That's a great question. And I really, I really agree with you about ultimately strategy is a choice about the things that are also not included. So I, I really appreciate the perspective of the question. The way we looked at it was that if you're trying to get the nation's attention about where it should lead, that it should be a, a fairly bounded number. If you look at sort of the technology lists at OSTP, it's, it's a rich list I enjoyed being in on that process last year personally, but it's a long list. And so you think, how do you narrow that down to where a nation needs sort of like a whole of nation effort with the private sector? Uh, so to that end, we said first, one, it should probably be a smaller number. And then at the end of the day, we all know there are wild cards. There's always going to be component technologies that catch your attention, that sort of blow your mind. We saw something recently called communal computing when you go into a room and you are in the computer, and the, the room is interacting with you, and it's interacting with the internet. And it's possible that such things will be connected to natural language processing, where they're able to scrape the scientific periodicals of the world and bring them into your own language in this computer room where you're in it. That's a fascinating idea of a wild card. It's not something that we've said, oh, the nation needs a plan for that. But as a part of our process, which we'd love to describe to you, we think that a nation should always be horizon scanning for those wild cards while it plans to lead in the things that you would call the battlegrounds. You mentioned you were involved in that OSDP report, which for the listeners is like 40 pages of like, of like, I think there were like 14 like headers and then there were like subheaders and subheaders of the subheaders and you ended up having hundreds and hundreds of different technologies. Like how did that document happen? What's the backstory for something like that? Yeah, you know, when a nation is trying to decide about all these technologies that are emerging sort of at once, it was a very methodical sort of democratic process led by OSTP in conjunction with the National Security Council to say which ones matter most, just like Vishnu was sort of asking about how we did before. It's a very much an interagency process, so you can think of a large convening. Again, there might be more of a representation if it's led by OSTP by the kinds of questions that scientists will normally ask. And then it's a, it's a matter of trying to get in the other questions and the other lenses to try to make a, a more complete picture about which ones a nation needs to plan to. But I would, I would describe it as a very thorough process. In that one, particularly on our tech questions, as it's described in sort of the preamble, the two that were the central questions that were being asked were economic and military advantage. So which, which technology is most likely to impact the economy, which ones could fundamentally alter the military balance of power outright by their existence were sort of where the dialogue centered on, right? So that's like two of the 21 questions that we think about in the funnel. Just one thing to add on, on Vishnu's question about what was on the margins or hit the cutting room floor in, in the list making exercise. And I think uh, one thing we have really thought about a lot is what are the domains in which innovation is occurring? So one sort of framework that we came up with to help us understand innovation today and, and where we see it headed is that the past few decades of innovation have occurred primarily in the digital domain at the intersection of software, hardware, and networks. So today we see AI, 5G, and semiconductors being the predominant battlegrounds for, for tech today. Now, each of those will evolve with new computing paradigms, AI's continued evolution, and advanced networks. And beyond the digital domain, we're also seeing the biotechnical domain become more relevant, as well as the physical domain with energy storage and generation having uh, a wide variety of new techniques coming alive and smart manufacturing sort of representing the intersection of the digital, physical, and biotechnical. 
So thinking about domains, however, could lead us to ignore other domains like cyber and space. So that's to say cyber and space are two areas where there are major domains where technological innovation is occurring and is occurring and that we want to pay attention to. I think something that we try to continue to do is make sure that we are thinking about those as we think about sort of digital, physical, biotechnical domains as well. So just a point about how we bucket, how we think about domains where innovation is occurring and where we see innovation going forward that we recognize that's not in in the ABCs, atoms, bits and cells framework, but it are important domains. There's a big chunk of your paper where you guys try to assess who's winning across a number of different technologies. Walk us through your analytic approach for first doing the sort of point in time, I guess like fall of 2022 when you published, how you pick which data points to uh, to look at to understand these different technologies. So we built this list uh, of gaps analysis that we call them, two main real reasons behind it. First was to show the power that's out there in terms of open source, what can be done for this kind of analysis. And second is not as a holistic or comprehensive list of every single important discrepancy between the US and the PRC, but to show as kind of a canary in the coal mine that if gaps are encouraging in strategic technologies, then something's not right with our process and our innovation ecosystem. So that was the framing that we went into this assessment with. We then looked at the six technology battlegrounds that SESP had identified in its September first rollout report, Mid-Decade Challenges, National Competitiveness. So we already knew which sectors we were looking for to interrogate the ecosystem and see if there were gaps. We then looked to specific sector-specific metrics in those to drill down and find some examples in each of the six sectors that we care about. So advanced batteries is an example of energy generation storage is a sector we care about. Biopharma within the biotech space. We picked metrics where we could based on ideal metrics. So where we found data that aligned with what we'd love to measure the sector by in terms of who's ahead or who's not ahead. And when we couldn't, we had to turn to some proxies. And that impacted our confidence in these various assessments. And then when we say who's ahead or not ahead, we had two categories there. So technology leadership versus a technology being contested. And we didn't see that as a definitive lead. So technology le- leadership would be, there is a clear advantage. Contested on the flip side doesn't mean that it has to be 50-50 on a nice edge, though. It's just not a clear winner by the metric that we're talking about. So that's how we kind of approached going into it. And then the other thing we did was think about directional, too, because this is a snapshot in a moment in time. So where is it going to trend up to 2025, not just where it is now? And for listeners, can you just pin that down with, with an example? You cover several technologies, but could you just very briefly walk us through what that analytic process looks like for take a technology of your choice? So let me do a, a simple one and then a slightly more complex one so you can see the comparison between the two. So a simpler one would be commercial drones. Not military drones, not thinking about things that DOD puts out there, but commercial drones that you might have uh, get for Christmas or something like that. For that, it was a fairly simple measurement looking at uh, global market share. So that was easy to use. Where is it being used around the world? Where are they the masters? And here, clearly it is DJI, the Chinese firm, way outsells anything else in the world when it comes to drones. Compare that to a more complicated one, say, advanced manufacturing, which is a sector we really care about. Is our manufacturing base good for production of those strategic technologies we need, whether you're in a geopolitical crisis or whether you're in a global pandemic and need PPE? That's harder. It's harder because it's even difficult just to define what advanced manufacturing means. So for there, we had to use a series of proxy indicators. We used six. So looking at US and PRC workforce when it comes to that space, looking at robotics density in each country, looking at secure access to the microelectronics that underlie a lot of those uh, advanced manufacturing systems, the industry level of advanced networks in advanced manufacturing, like 5G installations. And then we rounded out with value-added output. So that's something where we had to use a lot more small indicators and try to add that up to show a larger picture compared to something where we felt there was a single uh, flashing light as an indicator that we could use to make a safe assessment. 
And which technologies of the several you cover do you have the highest confidence in in your judgments, both in the kind of immediate point-in-time analysis and in your predictions of leadership over the medium term? So two examples of a, a high confidence and a low confidence. We have high confidence, both that the PRC leads in advanced batteries and it will continue to lead in advanced batteries based on the data that we use. So the metrics of access to raw materials, access to production capacity. We know from the data that that's really heavily focused in the PRC. We know that there you can see the way that investment's going and that timelines for that on a 2025 timeline. We don't see that changing in a way that really meaningfully moves the needle. Compare that with an assessment of say synthetic biology, where we have that as a US leadership today and tomorrow, but we have a lower confidence on that. And that comes from difficulty in bounding the area. Synthetic biology is hard to put a really firm grip around what's in, what's out. It's an emergent area. So we have to use proxy indicators for it in terms of how we think a leadership is being assessed. So for something like that, we uh, had we made a call with the data we had, but we're more open to getting new data. And that gives us a lower confidence. One thing to add too is that we did a lot of this assessment with the private sector. So for example, on fusion energy, that's a, that's a gap where there's a clear, strong position in the United States. We were talking both to the national labs and to US companies that are literally starting fusion reactors. And we also asked them to sort of color our analysis in the background. Hey, where do you see your race? Where do you see this competition? Just to gather some qualitative info from those who are sort of on the bleeding edge of the competition. We did that across all these sectors, including ones we didn't inclu include in the report. So it seems like a lot of the analysis you're doing is about comparing fairly strictly U.S. and China ecosystems. How do you factor allies and kind of distributed production networks into your into both sides, both the U.S. and, and PRC sides? Yeah, the allies and partner question is a huge one because, I mean, clearly if there's a geopolitical competition, one of the greatest strengths from the United States point of view is America doesn't compete alone. It's part of a global network of allies and partners that together make up a much more collective strength than individually. For this assessment, we focused much more just US versus China, knowing that's in the backdrop. And in our appendix, we talk about future studies really do want to pull in, you know, we, we, a lot of us think of red versus blue is the, the shorthand in the field. We'd like a bigger blue. We'd like a blue plus green that looks at those production capacities or the research skills of partners and allies to do the next, to do future versions of these kind of assessments. We think that would be the most value add. In terms of the way some of these networks are distributed to the other part of your question, Vishnu, and how that impacts, we bake that into some of our analysis. So one specific example I can give you is semiconductors, where when you're trying to talk about who has an advantage in semiconductors, just looking strictly at the US or the PRC, then there we had to say, okay, an advantage of semiconductors is meaning what? what? What are you using them for? What is the value of having them? And we made our metric having a resilient and consistent access to both advanced and legacy nodes that an economy and a, a defense establishment would need. So for there, what factored heavily in our assessment was the fact that both the US and China don't have these things domestically, these, these supply chains domestically. What they need is reliance on third-party states obviously Taiwan, but also Japan, ROK, Netherlands, and ASML. So the distribution of some of these supply chains was definitely a huge part of our assessment here. So one more question is on the, the question of ends, right? So strategy theorists will talk about kind of aligning means and ends. And when you're thinking about how, what types of investments and how much investment you put in any of these domains, you must have some sort of end in mind. And it strikes me that those ends differ based on the technology. So having an Intel i7 processor in my hand is not particularly useful. Having it in a laptop that I can use is particularly useful. Something similar for batteries and, and so on. How do you think about that challenge? The challenge of looking at manufacturing ecosystems, but then distinguishing between finished components and finished goods. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Our thoughts about the ends sort of happen across levels of analysis, right? In big picture, the question of the ends of why would a nation plan to lead in any of these technologies is also it's like a grand strategic question, which we come at to keep it really simple from the positioning school. So you see in our basic model, we think you don't know what necessarily the world's going to look like in 2030, but you can sort of say we probably should have positional advantage in X or Y, that it would favor a nation to, you know, to have advantage in that. So it's a basic positioning school logic of the same way firms choose positions in a market is maybe the way a state thinks about choosing leadership in these sectors. So it's sort of a basic positioning school argument, down a layer into the sector, you can see where the cumulative results of many technological outcomes, both public and private, can say, oh, the US might have a soft lead in space. And so it's at not the component level, but it's at the sector level. And then when we actually break down to plans, like a, a plan that we put out for leadership in fusion energy by 2030, we're thinking about actual p- component outcomes and actual reactors and how many could be done? What does the infrastructure need to look like to actually accommodate fusion energy? And so the technological level of analysis then sort of comes in then. And you might think of the ends happening across those levels of analysis. Once it's grand strategic positioning school, it comes down to a sector, which is cumulative sector leadership. And then the technological level of analysis is what actual tech ambitions do you need and outcomes do you need? Very specific to actually lead in that tech. And so we see them kind of across those levels of analysis. So let's talk about diffusion for a second. It's nice to have a lead, but if it doesn't last, it's less useful as a lead. How does that sort of dynamic factor into how you're thinking about these issues? Yeah, I, I was going to pick up right where PJ left off in in talking about the levels of analysis where we're thinking about advancing the uh, state of the technology itself, increasing TRL, technology readiness level. That's one thing, but diffusion, commercialization, and scale are what will amount to leadership in any given technology. So to continue to to pull a thread on the fusion energy example, we thought about, sure, the, the scientific milestone is achieving net energy, creating more energy than was used for a reaction. But none of that matters if you can't commercialize and diffuse the technology and, and build the uh, facilities and get that energy onto the grid. So in the action plan we developed, the sort of key policy, the central or guiding policy for the action plan was how do you turn fusion energy from a scientific mission to a commercial mission? And everything in the action plan from the technological level of analysis to policy levers such as supply chain, talent, national leadership incentives, et cetera, is aimed around moving it from a scientific mission to a commercial mission. So I think as we sort of move from identifying an important technology and sort of what the bold moonshot ideas that or goals that could move the actual technological readiness level forward, we don't stop there. It's, it's more about how do we actually translate this into a lasting advantage and that requires thinking about diffusion, commercialization and scale uh, with each technology sort of having a a different combination of, of those three things that are needed for advantage. One of the things I should have explained up front is that our, our panels at the SCSP have senior advisors. So for the tech panel, one of the things we did is we thought, how do you get these different lenses together in the country to think through these questions like diffusion? And so we thought we want a grand strategist and Condoleezza Rice accepted that offer. So she is our senior advisor for say grand strategy. For technology, Reid Hoffman has been 
really helping us think through this and how he thinks through it from a technologist perspective. And then also from a venture perspective, we've really enjoyed the advice of, say, Ben Harvitz from Andreessen. And so if you look in our report, you'll see that those are some of our advisors. We could go down. We have other advisors like Steve Rosen at Harvard. But if you think back to that, we got some of the advice from our technologists that said, you can think of diffusion in three big ways. One, there's going to be diffusion that is commercializable. So it just takes off in the market and it, it's not really going to need a lot of government involvement. You might think of social media platforms this way. And then there's going to be markets that need a nudge because the market's not seeing the logic for it yet, but it's a competitive issue. You might think of the beginning of semiconductors in the US this way. You might think of ARPANET and the beginning of the internet this way before it really took off. And then the third category is places where the government can only be the market. And this is, of course, dealing with things like countering hypersonic weapons advantages in the PRC or things like the moon, where the government was the market. And even though a large share of what was achieved in Apollo from 67 to 69 was on contract, the government was the market. So you can think of diffusion that way, too, right, is which technological advantage can only diffuse into our economy and our society in those three bins? And those are the kinds of pieces of advice that we've really enjoyed from our advisors. So, you know, let's talk about advisors for a second. You have America's best and brightest talking to you guys, but these folks also have sort of financial incentives in the outcomes of these questions. And, you know, it's not just it's not just in your report, but sort of the the kind of vision of how you're thinking about how to sort of feed into this technology strategy making uh, has a lot of private sector involvement in that process. So I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, how you guys sort of filtered the information or discounted the information that was coming in with people who have to a greater or lesser extent uh, some, you know, stake beyond just being like a patriotic American in how how these sorts of debates play out and how you think kind of the government or whatever analytical body that takes, you know, wills five pages on on batteries and turns that into hundreds and thousands of pages should relate in a uh in a way that sort of has the national interests first and foremost, even though the kind of like knowledge that's generated at the cutting edge of these industries are people who have a, a you know, who are, who, you know, are fundamentally working off a of profit motive. No, that's a great question because in some sense, as we think through public private modeling for the country, we, we want to experiment with a public private model that doesn't just end with our project when it ends. We're, we're trying to experiment with how would the, how would the government do such a thing? by navigating these important ethical and financial questions that you've asked. I think the first place we start is just thinking about what is an SSP-like project to begin with. It was, it, was just an, it was a nonpartisan effort in the 50s to get together as many thinkers that wanted to devote their lives to this at this point. And in the case of the 50s, it was Rockefeller bringing Kissinger out of Harvard and said, hey, I want you to convene people who can think through this problem for us and how to organize the nation for a geostrategic competition of its generation. The second way we sort of keep objectivity and filter that is that we're we're wholly nonpartisan. So it's a completely nonpartisan, nonpolitical C3 501 funded charity to just advance the interests of the country as a whole. The third way that we sort of maintain this objectivity that we thought is the breadth of our advisors and the breadth of our participants. And so what we're trying to do is just be a place where people can plug in. And of course, we use all kinds of uh, great filters, uh, normal filters you would use anywhere in government, like ledge affairs and gov affairs and general counsel. And so you're always looking for conflicts of interest and filtering all those things intensely, just like you would in any other any other national endeavor that that has those functions. But in our case, what we also have tried to do is just to say how many national figures and not necessarily always household names. If you were to look at our tech panel, you're looking at people who have built large technology programs for a living, but they're not people who are household names, but they want to give eight to 10 hours a year to help think through moves the nation should make, just again, charitably. So I think those three ways, right? You just think about the structure of what is the SCSP modeled after, it's modeled after SSP. It's a convening body, it's nonpartisan. It casts a wide net, it has a wide uh, part of advisors that if you take the six panels and you add up all the advisors for each panel, I've only described to you the ones on the tech panel, you'd see an incredibly sort of diverse and rich intellectual depth that we're trying to achieve. So I think that's, that's how we navigate through ensuring objectivity and clarity of our, of our thoughts and recommendations. So I've been like reading a lot of RAND history recently, and it's, it's really interesting to kind of think back 
to the 50s and early 60s of just how strong that consensus was at every level of government. And, you know, once you got into the Vietnam War, you saw the cracks being formed, you know, right in Rand with Daniel Ellsberg, who, you know, was a golden boy, like writing research reports about how to rationalize the, the Pentagon and whatnot. And all of a sudden, you know, he's he's leaking the Pentagon papers. I don't know, PJ, just like as a historian, any kind of reflections on that moment versus today's moment? We talked a little earlier about the the China consensus. You know, how does it compare to where where, you know, America was in the 40s, 50s and early 60s? Your Rand analogy is fantastic. I love it. I think that what you see is a democracy working in accordance with its normal processes until acted upon by an exogenous force, right? And so what you have is you have early people early thinking about this, like from Kennan, and not every, not every American's reading the long telegram, but the president is. And so then the president says, what would you do about it? And you get Article X. And then after Article X, the NSC gets involved in 50 and says, okay, how would we implement such a vision of what winning looks like. And you get the beginnings of NSC 68. From, from there on, from 1950 to 1957, you have a general sense in people who study the subject and care about it, like we need to get organized. This is, of course, where SSP begins pre-Sputnik. And then when Sputnik happens, you have the people demanding that I do something about it. And of course, between 57, it takes until 58, where he actually establishes NASA out of NACA or NACA. And then we're off between 58 and 62. So what I think is you see the normal democratic processes, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of speech, all the things that make us us and normally having in the democracy with people with varying opinions, even at Rand. And then what you have is the democracy is acted upon by an exogenous force. And then you start to see a unity. You start to see not, not by any means, in my view, a group think, but you start to see people you know, getting together. And of course, if you look at the Cold War, that changes by decade. You know, it's, Sting is not singing, I hope the Russians love their children too, until 1985. And so I think there's this general arc of being acted upon by an exogenous force and then just normal, the normal goodness of freedom of expression and democracy internally. Sure. So another, another point you raised was this idea of nonpartisanship. And, you know, as you have that exogenous force creating a consensus where there wasn't before, you know, what is conceived as nonpartisan expands, perhaps, at least in some dimensions. But, you know, there inevitably are plenty of potential interventions that uh, U.S. government could make around technology, which have a political valence and, you know, may end up being the ones that after you do the thousand page report on high capacity batteries are the most, you know, cost effective and impactful. And, you know, for whatever reason, you, you know, that thousand page study is not going to convince the Republicans or the Democrats, the case, whatever the case may be, that this is the right way to go. So, you know, over the course of doing this work, I'm curious if you guys have any reflections on how far the nonpartisan stance can get you and where the bounds of that sort of approach lie. The way we sort of think about it is that we're nonpartisan in our thinking, we're nonpartisan in our convening. And then when things go from thought to action, as they did in the National Security Commission on AI, they're bipartisan in their activity. And so you just have to honor the political realities to try to move recommendations towards to collective action in the democracy. So in some sense, you begin at the top as objective and as, you know, as nonpartisan as you can be. In action is the only time you become bipartisan. And the beauty of our subject is that we, ha we have found that technology advantage and just techno-economic power, the thought in general, is, a, is a generally a unifying subject. There's lines where that changes. If we start talking about talent and we start talking about immigration, there's always going to be bipartisan lines, which are just normal to our system. But the way we think about it is, your thought stays nonpartisan. You become bipartisan when things have to move to action. But fortunately, you're dealing with a subject which is inherently unifying. PJ, did you guys take any negative lessons from uh, what happened in the 50s? Aside from adding a tech panel, sort of going back and looking at that, are there any things you noticed that uh, like they didn't quite land on that you tried to iterate on when setting up this process? Well, the work of SSP 
actually made some recommendations that are still with us today, such as if you're going to actually execute containment, how do you do that if you don't have a global structure to do that? So early thinkings about the global COCOM structure, for example, for better or for worse, if it's still appropriate today, started there with SSP. There's a lot of discussion in the 50s work about the prosperity of the country, about the unity of the country, uh, about those kinds of evergreen themes that I think any project like ours would still care about. So I don't, I'm not sure that there was anything glaring there. Outside the project, I certainly think, you know, the 50s had a democracy trying to get organized pre-Sputnik for, for a competition. And so, of course, as you see people joining the consensus about the competition based on the assertive behavior of the Soviet Union at the time, there's definitely some things that today we would regard as lunatic fringes like McCarthyism that don't represent the whole nature of the competition, but that's certainly not anything we ever want to replicate. I definitely think if you look at the tech side of, of our adaptations, there was a long debate to get to Apollo, a very long debate. And if you, there's a great out-of-print book uh, called Apollo Race to the Moon, which is my favorite on the subject, but it, it really describes how Ike was reluctant to give the space competition to the military. He didn't want to give it to Werner von Braun. So what do you do? And there was this lull period of like, where is there an elite aerospace organization that can convert into NASA whole cloth? You know? So there's a, there a long period of time there. I think there's some questions, Jordan, to ask about from 58 to 62, how are we, how are we actually organizing? There is literally a motion by the Soviet Union at the UN to help the United States space program. Like maybe they need some resources. Maybe they need some help. That was a great moment, right? So we have Sputnik 1. And then just a few weeks later, you have Sputnik 2, which has the dog Laika. And it, you know, it wasn't just the dog. The final stage of the rocket had a six tons of weight on it that the Soviet Union got to orbit around the world. So now I'm reading from the book that you just referenced, Apollo Race to the Moon. The United States, on the other hand, was working on a grapefruit-sized satellite that weighed three and a half pounds. Two months later, so two months after Sputnik 2, um, so this is fall-winter of 1957, the Department of the Navy tried to launch this puny competitor to Sputnik in front of television and newspaper cameras around the world. The Vanguard rocket being used for the launch rose four feet into the air, fell back, and crumpled onto the pad a few days later, the Soviet delegate to the United Nations inquired solicitously whether you, the United States was interested in receiving aid earmarked for underdeveloped countries. It's good stuff, right? Exactly. I mean, I think we could hardly imagine that, right? So I don't think we want to model that, uh, right? Like, we don't want to be in a position where, you know, the PRC is like, oh, maybe the United States needs a handout in drones or they need, they need some help with exportable 5G. I mean, that's certainly not a position we want to be in. So I, I, would, I would say from the 50s, those are certainly things we can learn. I, I definitely think there, there, is, there is just this question about how across the decades the country organized, like an arc, you know, from, you could say, from long telegram all the way to Roche-Marshall strategy in the 80s. It's a, it's a, it's a multi-decade arc going across approximately nine administrations. And you could see things all along, all along the way. I mean, even if you look at the way the intelligence community was organizing in the 50s, I'm sure there's some lessons learned there too, but. I, I do think it's it's a wise question to ask about what not to do as well as what to do. Just riffing on that last question there, I think there are two major things that have changed uh, since the context in which the SSP report was written in the 50s. One is the number of technologies that are sort of evolving today and have potential to change the world around us. In the 50s, it was fundamentally how are nuclear weapons changing the world around us, everything from society to economy to our defense posture. And today, as we've talked about, it's six general purpose technologies that are evolving and converging. So there's a, a lot more happening and happening very quickly with the pace of technological uh, advances. And then two is uh, the report in the 50s was written before Sputnik, but there was a Sputnik moment that sort of woke the nation up to the competition. I think the information space we're in today is just fundamentally different. And so our project needs, we can't expect that we publish a report that like in the 50s, 500,000 people bought the, the book at the end of it. We have to, to figure out, can we expect there to be sort of a moment that the nation wakes up to the competition today? Or if we cannot expect that, how do we, how do we sort of 
help democracy wake up to it and and think about it in a different way uh, where one sort of report isn't isn't going to fit the bill. So let's talk a little bit about section I found particularly interesting, which was, I think, Appendix C, where you all talk about these different models, um, and you referenced them earlier, different models for how to essentially analyze the science and tech landscape and then implement within government set of policies to respond to that and to, to accelerate it. Can you talk to us a little bit about what are the different models? How do they differ? And what are the strengths and weaknesses of each? Yeah, so I can just sort of walk through the public-private national technology strategy model that we recommended and uh, have been attempting to sort of test drive or beta test over the past year and change. So we see this model as having essentially five functions. The first is that it starts from the premise of the positioning school that, that PJ mentioned, where we want uh, to be the nation that is sort of defining the realities of uh, a technology battleground and not reacting to them, positioning ourselves in accordance with our competitive advantages. The first main bucket that we see this process carrying out is the study function. So that entails uh, horizon scanning, both of technology horizons and then also of the rival ecosystem. Those are also the first two columns on the framework we use to evaluate technologies. And it's sort of at this stage that you start using that funnel to evaluate where is tech going? What does the rival ecosystem care about? Where is our uh, ecosystem delivering advantage naturally, et cetera? This study function then feeds into what we call the, the curation function, where we bring together technologists uh, from both the private sector, but also across the innovation ecosystem to sort of curate at two different levels of analysis, both the sort of specific technology moonshots that could advance the ecosystem or sort of diffusion scale commercialization moves that, that would really help catalyze any given technology. And also at the uh, more macro policy level, sort of a sector level action plan that's combining that sort of tech moonshot with the policy levers that that would also be needed to make that happen. So the curation panel does that. And then the next function is resourcing. And that is sort of thinking creatively about how to voluntarily pull together resources from, from government to venture capital to private equity and foundations. Uh, what are sort of creative mechanisms that we can actually think about how to put money behind those ideas? And then, of course, implementing all of those ideas is, is the next bucket. And then what sort of falls out of each of these phases and that Will can talk more about is organizational lessons about sort of what changes to existing organizations or new organizations would help better prepare our democracy for this competition. Where would this model ideally live? Uh, what would its functions be? How would it think through the important sort of ethics questions that we've discussed? I think it's really important that Abby talked about what our process is, because we see that as a process as a public-private engine of innovation for the country. And we want to make sure that we were building an institution or an organization around that engine rather than trying to shoehorn that engine into an existing organization or institution. We took a blank slate and thought, ideally, what could an organization look like that would perform this national tech strategy process? We identified eight different elements that we thought would be ideal for this. They include you know, things about access to public and private, the kind of lens and technology scope, uh, the ability to do analysis and do implementation, the ability to last over administrations for a long-term competition. Okay, so, so you guys proposed four different structures. Um, uh, stack rank them. So looking at the structures, we would say of the four, one, reform institutions, Two, build something new that sits in government. Three, build something new government adjacent. Or four, have something that's in the private or in the non-governmental section. Our stack rank is a hybrid model, actually. The number one we come away with is the idea of having a three-legged stool. So you need something that does analysis. There, we draw on the idea of an Office of Global Competition Analysis that sits outside the White House as a degree removed and can do independent analysis of tech trends. That's where the study function of our process would occur. You then take those identified technologies and you bring them to a tech competitiveness council, a TCC at the White House, that can do action. So that's the second of the two models. 
why we went hybrid in the end is to bring in the third idea of the stool, a government adjacent that can do some things that's harder to do just in government. So we wanted to capture both of those synergies. Okay, Will, sounds great. PJ, let's straw man it for a second. What's the problem with this, uh, this hybrid model? Well, first of all, there's a lot of existing organizations that may think they're doing this. So that's problem one. Problem two would be the idea of who actually has the will to create, even if it's a very small elite organization, like one recommended by NSCAI called the Technology Competitiveness Council, let's say 30 people that look a lot like you and Vishnu, getting together, organizing this for the country, who has the political will to actually establish that so you can have intellectual continuity that transcends administrations? That's two. Three, there are legalities and they're righteous to consider how do you bring the private sector in here while not violating any concerns of private, private interest. And so that's, a, that's a, just a legitimate process. Fortunately, what we found both when I was at the NSC, when I was in DOD, now that I'm out, you know, I feel like we have a lot of guardrails to, to do that, particularly through most general counsel functions of an organization. But I'd say that that's a third thing, which is how do you convene all of these, sometimes we're talking about billionaires without any perception of, of private interest that someone might want to cook up, even if it's not real. So I think those are three things that you think about, how does this fail? You know, what, is, what does failure look like? It's a lot to ask to create an organization, whole cloth, you know, place it in the White House. Something like the National Economic Council was an act of law in 1946. Are we ready to do that again? As Vishnu suggested, there are definitely at least 30 people already in government that like aren't delivering the goods now. So what's what's not working about those unnamed organizations who think they're already solving this, PJ? If you think about how chips, IRA, and infrastructure worked, and look at those as three big moves the democracy made, there are different ways where both branches of government were cooperating. If you add, whether it's appropriated or not, the cumulative financial bogey in all three acts, you can gust over a trillion. So if you look at how does that work, like how did that work? In some sense, it was a little bit of left to, to, left to the democratic process and left to time. When we look at battlegrounds we're shooting behind a target in now, like exportable 5G, or looking at where we are on the drone commercial ecosystem, uh, where we're looking at PRC battery dominance, and not only battery dominance in lithium, but we've done a patent trajectory of what's post-lithium, and you know the PRC is already there and thoughtful. So the question is, who's looking at the competition to add a sense of urgency so that all of those national strategies move as one? You know, in some sense, you can look and say, the, the CHIPS export controls and the CHIPS Act, if you were to put them together in a plan the five of us came up with, you know, you could say that that looks like counter and promote, like two moves, but they didn't really happen that way. So I think all we're saying is that you can see the democracy doing the right things in places, but there's no one place where it's asking all these competition questions and no one place that planning is guaranteed to happen. Is there a downside of like over-engineering this if, uh, you know, all of a sudden all four of your study ideas get passed? I think the answer is yes. I think the way we, we think about it is that we're looking at selective changes that could be made structurally to make us more competitive. And if you look at what our econ panel is looking at, which is the entire U.S. economy, in some cases, the global economic system, it's, a, it's so vast that when they suggest there might be a methodical way to do industrial strategy across five pillars, it's very small, it's very selective, and it's only when you don't want to leave it to chance. In the same way, we think that whole economic ecosystem feeds our innovation ecosystem, which is the object of our panel's affection. You know, we look across all of our, the U.S. innovation ecosystem and our allies and partners and say, where is, it, where is it not functioning? Where is it broken? In the same way that, say, Endless Frontiers did in the 40s to project a way that the United States innovates with greater power and consistency. We look at that system and say, the, the model that Abby showed that we should, with the private sector, do horizon scanning, go past listing and curate actual forms of technology advantage and think through our commercial ecosystem with investors about how you actually make that advantage diffused into our system, that that's not 
a radical idea. It just doesn't happen anywhere, but it's a small idea uh, compared to the vastness of the U.S. ecosystem, right? So I think to the question of over-engineering, I really appreciate it. I think the answer is yes, you could. What we proposed is something more modest about these two giant systems we study in, in the case of the tech panel and the econ panel. So book recs, aside from Francis Bacon, what else was uh, some fun off the wall stuff that you guys uh, encountered over the course of this project? I'll, I'll start by saying there is for me a book that I've encountered in more than one program because it has transfer value, which is Kuhn's Structure of Scientific, Revolution, uh, Structure of Scientific Revolution. So it's a little geeky, but if you like to study the way innovation happens and you like to think about the philosophy of science in general, it is in some sense at the guts of our tech question one, you know, which reads, could this technology yield a revolutionary breakthrough that upends existing paradigms? Well, like this is the book that talks about the five criteria of how you recognize a paradigm shifting. It's an oldie, but I, I just throw it out. It's, uh, it's one that I've passed to my team because I think it should be read. I really like business strategy fundamentals about Mintzberg's work, Strategy Safari, I think was a great work for us to think about different strategy paradigms. Uh, I think Michael Porter's work, his later work on competition has a lot of transfer value. And I, I do think that the repeating fundamentals of competition in, in the classics of strategy, what, what Gray would call the tier ones, right? I think, you know, I, I still read Thucydides. I still learn from it. I still enjoy it. I, I still read Sun Tzu, enjoy and learn it. And I still read On, on War by Clausewitz. I mean, those are, those are three that have so many repeating phenomena in the, in the nature of competition that it's hard to go wrong rereading them. How about you, Abby? I like to sort of put the, the sci-fi hat on and, and read sort of the sci-fi classics and everything from like Project Hail Mary to the three-body problem just sort of pushes my own thinking of, of how the world could change and, and what futures that are fictional today might not be in, in the future. I think there's, there's some fun literature out there thinking of how the private sector is self-conceptualizing itself in this contest. And the one that comes foremost to mind is Sebastian Malaby's recent book, Power Law on Venture Capital. I think a lot about how we resource these tech moves here. So books that are focused on that and, and how those actors are all of a sudden seeing themselves more thrust into the geopolitics is a really great way to think about the issue. Thanks so much for being part of China. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jordan Adichno. Appreciate what you do, Jordan.